I say a special welcome. My name is Fred. I'm the lead pastor here, and it's, it's great to have you. Hopefully on uh, the way into the auditorium here, you received this handout. Uh, if you have that and you're a guest within, with, uh, visiting with us today, uh, at the bottom there's a little QR code, and all you got to do is take out your smartphone and put your camera over that, and it'll take you to our online Connect card. Uh, we would love for you to let us know that you're visiting with us today, and if there's anything we can be praying for you for, if there's anything that you want to discuss about the church, that's a great way to let us know. Uh, if you don't like that tech-savvy version, the, the same card is in the pocket on the seat in front of you, and you can get that out and fill that out. And then a little bit later on in the service, we'll take up the offering, and you're welcome to just drop that right into the offering as it comes around. But um, most importantly, I just want to tell you welcome and let you know that we're excited that you're visiting with us today. Uh, we have a few things uh, going on here in, in the next few weeks, but most, most of all, I just want to say thank you to everybody who stepped up to serve, making it possible for us to go to two services a couple weeks ago uh, as we were all packed in here and people were parking uh, way down away from the building. I said, we need to go to two services, but to do that, we need more volunteers to step up and serve, and you have responded, so I'm very grateful for that. Thank you uh, for finding a place to serve, and if you're still looking, uh, please keep talking to us about that. We'd love to find something. Uh, that, that meets uh, the gifts that God has given you and give you opportunity to serve here and, and worship the Lord in that way as well. We've been going through the Gospel of John and we find ourselves in chapter 11 of John's Gospel today. That's uh, chapter 11 out of 21 chapters. And so we're just kind of like halfway through right now. And uh, we're actually coming to the end of the first part of this series in the Gospel of John. We're going to take a break in just a couple of weeks from John and go into, uh, well, we're going to do a couple different things before we get to Philippians. But then for the summer, for June, July, August, we're going to be in the book of Philippians together. And because John's Gospel is long, we're going to split it up into two. We'll pick it back up in the fall. And there's a really, really good breaking point to do just that because as we look at the big picture of John's gospel it's actually split you can split it into two if you would like and that's because the first 11 chapters are Jesus's life and ministry leading up to his coming to Jerusalem where he'll spend his final week and then believe it or not those last 10 or 11 chapters are all cover that last week of Jesus's life and so that's where we're going to break we've covered the first couple years of Jesus's ministry so far and then we'll in the fall we'll pick back up with that last week of Jesus's life and do the second half of John if you haven't been with us, or even if you have been with us, I think it's good to go back and remember John's purpose. John has a purpose statement at the end of his gospel, uh, and, and when I say it that way, it might be helpful um, for, for some of you if you're, if you're not familiar with the way the Bible's laid out. There are four books in the Bible. The Bible is actually 66 books that we've put together into one book. There are four books that tell the story of Jesus' earthly life and ministry, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So John is one of four accounts of Jesus' earthly life, and he has a purpose statement. Why do we have four different accounts? Well, they all had different purposes. They were all writing for different reasons, and uh, some would contend even to different audiences. And so John makes his purpose explicit at the end of his gospel. Let me read for you in John chapter 20. This won't be on the screen. You'll just listen as I, as I read. Jesus said, "'Because you have seen me, you have believed.'" Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. 
Jesus has, at this point in John's gospel, resurrected from the dead, and his disciple, he's making appearances to his disciples. You may know that Jesus didn't immediately just appear to everybody after his resurrection. His appearances were stretched out over a period of days and even weeks. And he appears to, to his disciples at this time, and he says to them, he says, because you've seen me, you believe, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And so this is heading towards the purpose of John's gospel. He's writing this gospel because Jesus, at the time of his writing, this is actually decades after Jesus' life and ministry on earth, at the time of John writing his gospel, Jesus has now ascended into heaven and nobody sees him anymore. So he's writing to people so that they might see, see him not physically but spiritually and believe. And then he says his purpose in writing this book. He says in verse 30 of John 20, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose for John's entire gospel. He's written down and he makes a very very detailed and organized case He presents his case for who Jesus is. He gives us seven signs, seven miraculous things that Jesus did. He gives us seven I am statements. Jesus himself makes himself known explicitly through his I am statements. And then you could even make a, a pretty solid case that he presents seven witnesses on the witness stand. So we've got seven signs, seven witnesses, seven I am statements. All of those John presents in an orderly fashion to bring us to this conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him we may have life in his name. Okay, so that's the big picture of what is going on. So if we go from the big picture down to the specific place in John's gospel that we want to be today, let's turn to John chapter 11 together. As I said, if you, if you, if you split John's gospel into two, the first 11 chapters, Jesus is always saying, my hour has not yet come. That statement occurs several times in the first 11 chapters of this book. And that's what when Jesus says that, what he's saying is the hour of his death, the hour of his suffering and pain for our sins on the cross has not yet come. Long before his hour comes, the Jews begin to seek out to kill him. They want to kill him for the state, well, for the miracles that he's doing, for the, the witnesses that are coming forward, and for the statements that he's making about himself. But repeatedly throughout that first part of John's gospel, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And he doesn't explain explicitly what it means that his hour will come, but we find out if we keep reading. Chapter 11 is going to be the transition in John's gospel from Jesus' hour not yet coming to now my hour has come. And we'll see some of that in our passage today. It's a long passage. I say that to prepare you uh, if, if I'm... As I read, I encourage you to do your best to stay engaged. You can follow along on the screen behind me. But let's look at John chapter 11, verses 1 through 37 together. Here's the story. Now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness will not end in death, 
but is for the glory of God so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, Jesus said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews tried to stone you, and you're going there again? Aren't there 12 hours in a day, Jesus answered. If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble, but he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble, because the light is not in him. He said this, and then he told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am on my way to wake him up. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will get well. Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus then told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. Then Thomas, called Twin, you may know him as Doubting Thomas. Then Thomas, called Twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let's go too so that we may die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and calling for you. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? Let's pray. Jesus, as we consider the miraculous sign that you are about to perform in this story, and as we consider the re your self-revelation, specifically your words when you said, I am the resurrection and the life. God, and as we think about how often we find ourselves in, in similar positions uh, as these two sisters, something has gone wrong, we have prayed, we have asked you to fix it, we have asked you to do something miraculous perhaps, 
and those prayers seemingly went unanswered. How should we respond then? How do we respond to you when we feel let down? How do we respond to you when we feel like you could have and should have done something for us? God, teach us from your word today. And may our faith grow as we see what a great God you are in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Long passage. Let me just try to recap real quick. So Jesus was in Jerusalem. He got in trouble in Jerusalem. The Jews tried to kill him. So he, he, he leaves from Jerusalem because his hour had not yet come. And he gets word from a town real close to Jerusalem, the town of Bethany, which we saw in the text about two miles outside of Jerusalem, that one of his very close friends has become sick. John goes out of his way to, well, let me, let me not get into to too many of the details yet. So Jesus waits a couple more days. He doesn't leave right away. He waits a couple more days, and then he goes, and he finds that Lazarus is dead. Of course, he already knew this before he went there. He finds Lazarus dead. The sisters come to him, and they both say the same thing. What is it they said? Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. They sent message to Jesus because they had seen this many times. Somebody gets very sick, Jesus just has to speak a word or lay a hand on them or how Jesus has the power to heal those who are sick. So they, Lazarus is deathly ill, but they're in luck. They're like, we have a great friend who fixes these kinds of problems. All we have to do is send word and he will come and heal Lazarus. But Jesus doesn't come. He intentionally waits for Lazarus to die. And in their mourning and in their grieving, they let out their emotion on Jesus. There's no secret here where they're placing the blame. There's no secret here that he has let them down. Lord, if you had been here. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a position like that where something was just going terribly wrong. And you thought to yourself, if God is good, if God loves me, if God has the power to do anything, then surely, with no effort whatsoever, he can fix this. And yet he doesn't. Then what? What do we do when God doesn't do what we wanted him to do? Well, let me give you some things from this passage. There's actually going to be five. Some things to remember when God doesn't answer the way you wanted him to. Five things to remember when God doesn't answer the way you wanted him to. The first one is this. Jesus loves you. Let the simplicity and the power of that not escape you this morning. When, when things seem to be going wrong, when your life seems to be out of control, when things aren't going the way that you hoped they would go, it's good to remember that Jesus loves you. He loves you. Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the creator of the universe, he loves you. Why do you have to remember that when you're in situations like that? Because it's the first thing that we let go out the window. 
we, we, we make the connection that if, if Jesus really loved me and he's able to fix this, then he wouldn't allow this to happen. Therefore, Jesus doesn't love me. It's only natural to, to, to come to that conclusion and to be tempted to think that way. Let me, let me comfort you with the truth. Let me and, uh, not just comfort you with it, but let me invite you to stand on and to remind yourself of what is real, of what is true. Pain does not negate Jesus' love for you. Tragedy does not mean that Jesus doesn't love you. He loves you. And you can be as sure of that as anything else in this world. John reminds us of that in this passage. Verse 5 it says, now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So interesting that John, that John includes that in the story. Why does he, why does he remind, why doesn't he just tell us the story? What does this have to do with anything? Why, why does he go out of his way to remind us? Because the details of the story seem to open the door to the possibility that Jesus doesn't love them. And sometimes the same thing happens to us. The details of our story seem to open the door to the possibility that maybe Jesus doesn't love us. So John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. As you read the rest of the story John's telling us, know this one thing is true. Know this fact. He loved Martha. He loved Mary. And he loved Lazarus. Okay. Well, let's start with that. That doesn't, that doesn't explain why Jesus stayed two more days before coming to Lazarus. That doesn't explain why Jesus didn't even just... We've seen this in other, in other accounts of the gospel that Jesus didn't even need to go to Lazarus. There was a man who came to Jesus and, and, and he said, my daughter's sick. And Jesus said, go, your daughter is well. He didn't, Jesus didn't even go to this girl to make her healthy. He simply said the word from a distance and it made her well. He could have done the same thing with Lazarus. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's remember Jesus loved Martha, he loved Mary, and he loved Lazarus. Romans 5, 8 says that, but God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you want sure proof that Jesus loves you, simply look to the cross. He's... What he has done on the cross ought to be the definitive proof that we need that Jesus loves us. But we're human. We don't always hold on to that. We, we give in to this temptation to think that because things aren't going well, because things aren't going the way I wanted them to, or the way I, he's not doing what I asked him to, then maybe he doesn't love me. It may not feel like God loves me right now. I may not be able to see how this is loving but the truth remains is that I can know that he does love me right now. I can know that Jesus loves me. I may not feel it, and I may not see it, but I need to know it. I need to be sure of it. Okay, so that's the first thing to remember when God doesn't answer the way you wanted him to. The second is this, that he loves you enough to not always give you what you ask for. 
dang, I wish that one wasn't in there. (laughs) But it's true, and it's actually good. He loves you enough to not always give you what you ask for. We think that we know what we need. And we're not going to like this analogy because it's just because of who we are and because we're prideful and we think we know enough and we think that we have a good enough plan for our own lives. But here's the analogy, guys. Is as a parent, and I know many of you in this room uh, are parents, and as a parent, you know that if you really love your child, you can't give them everything they ask for. You know that. You're absolutely sure of that because your children, with all of the confidence that any human being has ever had, will ask you for something that you know you shouldn't give them. The reality is, is that we're still children before God. And just like as a parent, you know things that your child doesn't know. And you understand through experience and through maturity things that they just don't yet know and understand. And therefore, you don't give them everything they ask for because it wouldn't be good for them. Because if you really love them, you'll withhold from them some of the things that they so confidently know they need. And that they are so confidently convinced will be for their good. Same is true of us. We, we must humbly ask God for what we want or what we think we need. We must always ask in a spirit of, if it's your will knowing that he knows best, knowing that he loves us enough. And, and even if you don't ask that way, even, even if you don't embrace that, you can still rest knowing that regardless of how you ask, he's not going to give you everything you ask for. He just loves you too much. He's too good. He's too loving to give you everything that you ask for. It says in verse six, so when he heard that he was sick, speaking of Lazarus, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. That would prove to be one of the most pain-causing decisions that Jesus made that we're told about in the Gospels. He, because he loved them, stayed two more days knowing good and well what that meant before Jesus even leaves to go and see Lazarus he already knows he died he intentionally waited for him to die are you ready to embrace a God with that strong of a love with that strong of a stomach A God who is willing to allow his children to experience pain because he loves them. You can't have a small view of God if if you're going to embrace that truth. It's easy to believe that, it's perhaps easier to believe that there's a God who's like a genie that just grants us everything that we wish for. But who, who wants to live in a universe where every, every flawed, broken human being gets everything that they wish for from this cosmic power called God? We, don't, we, we want to live, you know, they say uh, when, uh, um, when you become parents, the best thing you can do is give your children boundaries 
And even though they push against those boundaries and even though they'll at times rebel against those boundaries, children feel safe when they know that there's boundaries in their world. When, when you don't give children boundaries, uh, it really wrecks them and makes them um, feel very uh, like responsible for everything going on around them. They, they need to know that there's somebody more powerful over them that is overseen. And the same is true of God. He loves you enough to not always give you what you ask for. And so when he heard about Lazarus' illness, he stayed two more days. The Bible doesn't tell us what they did for those two days. I mean, can you imagine? Like, you know what it's like when, somebody's, when, when somebody that you love or somebody that you're close to is sick. You're on pins and needles. You're constantly checking your phone. You're, you're constantly making calls and checking in. Like, what, what did the doctor say now? Here's Jesus for two days just waiting it out because he loves us enough to not always give us what we ask for. Let me move on to the third one because I want to start to put a couple of these together. The third one is this, following Jesus involves risk and requires courage and trust. Following Jesus involves risk and requires courage and trust. So let me get a little more of the story out here. So we looked at verse five. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So, verse six, when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Let's pick it up in verse seven. The point here is following Jesus involves risk and requires courage and trust. So verse seven says this. Then after that, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. So they're, they're, uh, they've, they've left the region of Judea. Specifically, they were in Jerusalem I said this earlier, they tried to kill Jesus for the, the miracles that he was doing. He healed the blind man um, in, in John 9, and then that story kind of plays out, and everybody's like, well, who is this? And so they decide, they get real serious about killing him. So Jesus leaves Jerusalem. I don't want to say he flees Jerusalem because he's in complete control. They can't kill him until he allows them. And so he leaves Jerusalem, and he's out there. He's waiting for his hour to come. He gets word about Lazarus, says in verse 7, then after that he said to, his, to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Their immediate reaction is, Judea? Are you crazy? They're going to kill you. Like, they're literally going to kill you. They are, they are just determined to end this whole Jesus movement. It says in verse 8, Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews tried to stone you. And you're going there again? We're going back there to Judea where they're trying to kill you? And Jesus says, aren't there 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. And I think this, this is probably a reference to Jesus' kind of concluding that now the hour has come. He spoke uh, earlier in John chapter 9, we must do the works of God while it is still day, for night is coming. And so I think he's, he's alluding to the fact that it's about nighttime. Daytime's about up. It's about time for my hour to come. So in verse 11, he said this, and then he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. They're, and they're good friends. They're like, dude's taking a nap. Don't wake him up, Jesus. I mean... You need friends like that. You don't want friends that wake you up during a nap, right? They said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will get well. 
Let the guy sleep, Jesus. Why do we got to travel the whole way to Judea to wake a guy up from a good nap? Jesus, however, was speaking about his death. They thought he was speaking about natural sleep, so Jesus then told them plainly, Lazarus has died. He knows this already. He, that was his purpose in staying. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. Are you ready to serve a God that in your most painful moments says, I'm glad that has happened to you? Because it's accomplishing a greater purpose. And you got to remember, we talked about this a couple of weeks recently. God's glory and our good aren't, in, um, aren't against each other. They, they go together perfectly. What's, good, what's for God's glory is for our good. And what's for our good is for God's glory. So he says, I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe. But let's go to him. Verse 16, then Thomas, called twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let's go to so that we may die with him. And I think, I think he's referring to Jesus, not Lazarus here. This is how convinced they were that if they go back, this is how serious the situation is in Jerusalem. They know that if they go back to Jerusalem, they're going to kill Jesus. Thomas is so convinced of this that he even says, they're not only going to kill Jesus, but they're going to kill us. And what determination does he make? Let's go to so that we can die with him. Don't, under, don't, don't downplay or underestimate the loyalty of Jesus' disciples just because we know what happens when Jesus gets arrested and eventually crucified. And that is that they all, in the end, they weren't really willing to die for him. But just the fact that they were willing to say, they had two options. Stay where they're at and be safe or go to Jerusalem and die with Jesus. And let's give them credit for making the decision to say, let's go to Jerusalem and die with Jesus. That takes some courage. There's risk involved. And not just risk, but confidence that this is going to end poorly for them. Yet they were willing to do it. And the point I was making here is that following Jesus involves risk and requires courage and trust. If you think that following Jesus means that everything just goes tremendously well for you all the time and that everything gets better, and it's like, you know, that, that Lego song, everything is awesome, that Lego movie. I don't know if you guys have seen that or not. But um, if you think that's what following Jesus is going to be like, that's not what it's like. It is awesome. I don't want to be, I don't, I'm not trying to depress anybody here, I'm, but, but let's deal with the realities of this text. Following Jesus, it's a risk. It could cost you things that are valuable, things that are important to you. And that requires courage and trust. How many of Jesus' followers today would be willing to stand with Thomas and say, hey, even if it means we die, we go where Jesus goes? Is that where you're at? Are you willing to embrace that kind of risk are you, are you willing to, to, to walk in that kind of courage and trust? More likely than having to physically die for following Jesus is that you will have to trust him through painful situations. 
I can, in fact, I can guarantee you that one. I can't guarantee you that anybody's going to try to kill you for, for following Jesus like these guys were, were running the risk of. I can't guarantee you that. But what I can guarantee you is that your faith in him and your belief that he loves you and your belief that he is good and your belief that he is everything that we're saying that he is here will be, trust, will be tested through painful situations in your life. That's going to happen to all of us. At some point in your walk with Christ, God's not going to answer a prayer the way you wanted him to answer. God's not going to come through the way you needed him to come through. At some point, you're going to find yourself like Mary and Martha. Lord, if you had, then this wouldn't have. I say, I say these things not just because I see it in the Bible, but I say these things because I've, I've had to be there too. I've had to walk through that. Many of you know my youngest daughter was born with a brain injury and as a result has multiple disabilities. There's lots of things that she can't do that most of us take for granted. And, you know, the last 13 years of walking that road alongside of her, there's been plenty of moments like this. Plenty of times where, where I thought, Lord, if you had, then this wouldn't have. I remember standing, when she was six days old, I remember standing outside of the emergency room. We had taken her to the doctor uh, that morning because she did something weird in the middle of the night. It wasn't abundantly clear to us when it happened, but it turned out that it was uh, seizure activity, and we took her to the, the pediatrician the next morning. And uh, I was outside. Um, our, our pediatrician's office at the time was at the hospital, this was at Armstrong Hospital, was at the hospital but in a different building than the actual hospital, um, just where some of the doctor's offices were. But um, it was just a walk across the parking lot from the doctor's office to the hospital. And I was outside with Reese, who was probably like 18 months at the time, just keeping her entertained, you know, 18-month-old um, girls. And girls don't even grow out of this. They're just, you got to, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just back up. I'm outside with Reese, and uh, Kim's inside. My wife Kim's inside with Reagan, and I'm hoping, you know, this is not going to take too long, and he's going to say, yeah, weird things happen with babies, no big deal. Uh, she'll be fine. Instead, what I see is the pediatrician come running out of the, the office complex with Reagan, who's about this big, in his arms, and he doesn't even acknowledge me. He just runs for the emergency room. And what had happened was Reagan started having major seizures while he was examining her. And they rushed her into the emergency room, and just a whirlwind of activity takes place. And they're, they're trying to get uh, an IV into her to get her um, anti-seizure medicine. And, and, and we're, the world's just spinning, just spinning. I mean, I'm sitting there. All I wanted to do was pick her up and take her home. I'm like, I just don't want any of this to be happening right now. I remember when the doctor pulled Kim and I aside after, you know, I don't know how many minutes of, of this kind of sort of chaotic activity as doctors and nurses are trying to work with her. And, and, and he said, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Neal, we're going to need you to step outside. We, um, we can't get an IV into your daughter anywhere. It turned out she was dehydrated at that point. 
We can't get an IV into your daughter's veins. We've blown several veins trying. And we're going to do a procedure where we drill into her shin bone and administer medicine um, that way. I don't know anything about the science of that. I just know that I heard drill into her shin bone. And so we step outside and um, we're outside for a few minutes just, just devastated devastated that this is happening to our daughter we go back inside a few minutes later doctor same doctor pulls us aside and said i'm sorry you're gonna have to step outside again she formed a clot there and we need to do the same thing to her other leg and so at that point i'm just like god enough enough what could you i mean i'm i'm like i don't know 25 26 what can you possibly be doing through this? Like, why would you let this happen? Like, I'm a pastor. What else do you want from me? What do you want me to do? And, uh, you know, I don't want to tell the whole story because we go back inside and another clot had formed. They still can't get medicine in her. She's still seizing. Um, eventually, the, the medevac team from Children's Hospital gets there and they do get an IV in her. And they, they pull us aside and they say, they put it in her foot and they said, look, this is the the only place remaining that she can even get take an IV. Don't let anybody take this out. Guard it with your life. They got, let me just kind of wrap up that part of the story. Um, they, they got her to Children's Hospital, ran a bunch of tests, um, got the seizures under control, but that launched us into, you know, the last 13 years of, of this world of disability and having a, a daughter whose body is just broken, just doesn't work right does all kinds of things wrong. And there have been a, a lot of times where I just felt like Mary and Martha, Lord, uh, you could have just spoke a word. You could have stopped that. You could have healed her. You could have fixed that. But he's taught me over those 13 years that following him, it involves risk. Following him doesn't mean everything fits together the way it's supposed to and all of your problems are, are alleviated. And it requires courage and trust. I said this earlier, I want to say it again. God has a strong stomach. Because I'm thinking, I'm thinking like, I know how much I love her and I can't stand to see this happen. How can you, who loves her so much more than me, handle this? And, and I just came to the conclusion, that's the way I, th I thought of God has, you know, he has, he has, he has a strong stomach. There's no other way to say it. He can handle it. He can exist in a world where people whom he love, loves are suffering. And it's not sadistic at all. It's love. And I've caught tiny little glimpses of that as I have grown by, by little increments to embrace the fact that, that yeah, perhaps I can see how things going wrong can actually produce greater things in the end. I'm certainly not where I want to be with that, but, but I've embraced this idea that in, in the words of uh, Johnny Erickson Todd, if you don't know her story, look her up. Fantastic, um, just an amazing story. But she, she always says, God uses what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And I've seen that. I've seen God do far greater good through that pain and through that brokenness than I believe would have been possible if everything went right. But it takes courage. 
and more than courage, because courage sounds like, like it's within us, I guess. It takes trust. Trust says, I don't, I don't have within me what is required to do this, but I trust you. I will hold on. I will continue to believe, and I will have faith. It's, it's those moments where you say, look, even if this means I die, just like Thomas said, let's go, to, let's go to Jerusalem so that we can die too. Do you have that kind of trust in Jesus? We got two more. Let's keep moving. I want to tie all these together. I'm not moving on from any of that, but I want to tie them together. I think they all build. The next one is this. You'll see this on the handout. Jesus gives life that outlasts death. Man, how exciting this is. Because, well, let's just read the story. Let's look at it. Jesus gives life that outlasts death. Verse 17, when, when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Four days. This is long before, what's that stuff that they put in your body now? Formaldehyde, is that what it's called? This is long before that, right? So you know what this means, okay? And they're gonna, it's, they're gonna tell us. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away from Jerusalem. Many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them about their brother. Many of these same people who were trying to kill Jesus are now at Mary and Martha's house, and Jesus shows up. And he shows up in the middle of a funeral. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now, I know that what... Whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. I know, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection in the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. That's ironic because Lazarus has been in the grave for four days. Do you believe this? What a question to ask. She doesn't want to say no, because that sounds like she doesn't believe Jesus, but yet her brother's over here and he's dead. We have to think big picture. We have to think big picture. We have to think beyond the immediate, what we can see here and now. Let me give you a couple of scriptures. These won't be on the screen. Just listen as I read, as we, as we challenge ourselves to think big picture. Romans eight twenty eight says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are according to his purpose. All things work together for the good. All things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What's Jesus doing for Mary and Martha and Lazarus? He's continuing the process of what he began in them when they started to believe in him. He's moving them from dead in sin to alive forever and, 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 and taking them onto this road that eventually ends in them being glorified with him. That's what he's doing. And, but to, to make those steps 
There's some painful stuff that is going to take place. It's not an easy process. It's a difficult one. But it's an important one. Those he called, he also glorified. That's how it ends. Remember that. Think big picture. How does all this pain and this suffering and all this struggling and all this difficulty, how does this all end? It ends in glory. It ends in being glorified with Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4 says, Therefore we do not give up. Though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day, for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable weight of glory. We do not, so we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Think about that for a minute. That's what I mean when I say think big picture. Don't focus on what is seen. That's temporary. What is seen is all of the pain and all of the struggle and all the heart, heartache and, and, and all of the disease and the death and, and everything that makes this journey so painful at times. That's the stuff that we can see. That's temporary. Jesus gives life that outlasts death. There's a couple of ways to take Jesus' words. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. So he, says, even, so he opens the door to the possibility that you will die, but that you will live. But then he says something that almost seems contradictory. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Well, which one is it? Is it if you die, you will still live? Or is it if you believe, you will never die? And he's talking big picture. He's talking, look past what is seen. Of course, we're all going to die. But those who believe never die. You live forever. Death is merely the transition from one phase of our journey into the next phase of our journey, which is a far better place to be anyhow. He's the resurrection and the life. Jesus gives life that outlasts death. And then finally, the last one. Don't miss this one because it's so important. Our ungranted wishes, or maybe unanswered prayers, however you want to think of that, can be a testimony to a watching world. Our ungranted wishes can be a testimony to a watching world. Look at what happens in this story of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. So their prayers have gone unanswered. Jesus didn't do what he wanted them to do. Verse 27, yes, Lord, she told him, I believe you're the Messiah. Remember, verse 26 ended with, Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He puts her on the spot. Yes, Lord. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, because she, I mean, she understands the, the, the risk of Jesus showing up. Like Jesus just came to the people that are trying to kill him. So she says in private, the teacher's here and calling for you. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, 
my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him, he asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. When I say he has a strong stomach, don't mistake that for thinking that he has calloused skin or a calloused heart. He might have a strong stomach, but he's got a soft heart. Make no mistake about it, he feels what you feel, and he cares. You know, as parents, if I can go back to that analogy, as parents, so often we fail to care about what our kids are going through. Okay, judge me if you want, but if you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know, they lost something, um, you know, and, and you're like, oh, who cares? The thing was like 10 cents anyhow. It had no value. But to them, it was everything. It was like a prized possession, and it's so hard to care. They're like upset, and they're crying, and you're thinking, why are you crying? God is not like that. He doesn't, he doesn't treat our losses as if they're insignificant. I don't want you to walk away with that mistake that God is just, he's distant. He doesn't, he doesn't feel it. He doesn't care. He, he has such a strong stomach because he just doesn't care what we go through. That's not true. He has a soft heart. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled he felt it with them. This is Jesus' feeling within himself. This is hard. This is difficult. This hurts. Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. If anybody ever asks you, have you ever, do you have any scripture memorized? Just say, yes, I have memorized John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept. And, and you'll look like a rock star. You've got scripture memorized. But man, are those powerful words. Jesus wept. What made Jesus weep? Pain of his followers. He felt it. And he feels your pain. But here's, here's the point I'm making about this whole thing about being a testimony to the watching world. Look at verse 36. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. Even, even the Jews were moved by Jesus' emotional response. See how he loved them. Remember John says earlier in this story, he loved Mary or Martha or whichever one he named, her sister and Lazarus. And then he, he, he makes it a point again, even the Jews could see that Jesus loved them. Jesus loves you, don't forget that. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? Now they're watching. What kind of Jesus is this that you follow? This suffering opens the door for the testimony. Suffering commands the attention of a watching world. When, when somebody is known, who is known for their Christian faith is going through something, everybody's watching, most of them wringing their hands, hoping that this ends in their misery because they want to prove that God is not loving and that God is not real or whatever. But, but these ungranted wishes, these unanswered prayers open the door for a testimony to the watching world. And what a testimony this is about to become. 
You probably know how the story ends. I'm not going to get into that, how the story ends today. But this is about to become an amazing testimony. And it's about to kick off Jesus' hour, which has now come, which will lead in his death. Ungranted wishes can be a testimony to the watching world. I can, I can testify that Reagan's life has resulted in more witness and more testimony than I could have ever imagined. I can't tell you the impact that she has had on my own family and my extended family and our community. And, and, it, and I, just the other day, I won't tell the details of the story because it, it involves close family members, you know, outside of our household, but family members nonetheless. Uh, just the other day again, one of our family members was just moved literally to tears at Reagan's testimony and story. And I just, I just was like blown away. I'm like, God, here we are 13 years later, and you're still just like soft, melting hearts. She has such a ministry. That's the way I see it. She has such a ministry. She is ministering to people that I'll never be able to minister to. People who will never come hear me preach or care what I have to say. And she's reaching them and, and showing them that we have a good and loving God. And I don't say that to put responsibility, well, maybe a little bit of responsibility on you. But I, I don't want to burden you with responsibility that you have to you have to respond a certain way during suffering so that every, because that becomes real fake. You know, when you're hurting, that's not how, that's not how Reagan has, has touched people. Um, she doesn't always act like everything's okay. She'll let you know quicker than anybody if something's not okay with her, right? So I'm not saying we should just go around and be like, you know, you, you know somebody you love has died or you have some terrible diagnosis or things are going horribly wrong and you just have some fake smile like, yeah, but isn't God good? That's not what I'm talking about. People see right through that. They know it's fake. It's okay to be broken. You're supposed to be in pain when, things, when painful things are happening. And that is what God is going to use. Because he comes to, in, in the end, he's still faithful. Even when he doesn't answer the way we want him to, we can expect him to get glory. And we can expect him to work those things out for our good. Oftentimes in ways we won't be aware of yet. We've got to think big picture a lot of life's hurts and pains aren't going to be made right or be made good on this side of eternity. You just have to be okay with that. That's why it takes courage and trust to follow him. All right, so let me wrap this up. Let me just remind you of the five things that I want you to remember when God doesn't answer the way you wanted him to. One, Jesus loves you. Two, he loves you enough to not always give you what you ask for. Three, following him involves risk, and it requires courage and trust. Four, Jesus gives life that outlasts death. Five, ungranted wishes can be a testimony to the watching world. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for loving us this way. Loving us enough to not always give us what we want. Loving us enough to know what's best for us. God, for some, somebody in this room, this probably is more than just a sermon and five points from, from John 11. This is reality right now. 
because they're, they're feeling the pain of this world. God, I pray a special comfort for them today, knowing that you have a strong stomach but a soft heart and that you love them and that you're right there with them. Holy Spirit, would you just comfort them in ways that my words can't right now and wrap your loving arms around them. God, for the rest of us, this is something that may happen someday. Maybe someday we'll be in a position where this means something. Right now, things are going good. That's great. We celebrate in that. Thank you for seasons where things are going good. God, help us to continue to grow in you so that we're prepared, if anything, wherever it were to go wrong, that we could trust you and bring you glory in the midst of that. And most of all, God, if there's anybody here who has not trusted in Jesus for salvation by confessing their sins and trusting in what Jesus did on the cross, God, would today be the day that they come to you and simply say, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me and give me eternal life. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.